And Nassim, well, he became a Christian about 10 years ago. He was marvelously converted. And at the beginning, there was no stopping him. He was full of his, his newfound faith. He immediately got stuck into church. He began to read his Bible and to pray. And he was thrilled to talk about his newfound faith with others. But over the last five years, much of that initial zeal has gone. He, he still goes to church, but not as regularly as he once did. It, it used to be a priority, but if now something else comes up, he doesn't think twice about giving it a miss. He still prays from time to time, but whereas once Christ was often in his thoughts, now it's much rarer. Patience, on the other hand, has only been thinking about Christian things for the last year. She had a friend who invited her to join a, a course at a church. She enjoyed it a lot and is really interested, but something's holding her back and she doesn't quite know what it is. Jim, meanwhile, is not in the least bit interested. He thinks this Christian business is a load of tosh. Inwardly, if not outwardly, he sneers at Christians. He thinks that they are deluded, weak people leaning on a crutch which isn't there. So uh, Nassim, Patience and Jim, three very different people, yet they all have something in common. They're all suffering from unbelief. Have we got a problem with my mic, have we? There we are. Okay, we'll use this. Thanks. Unbelief isn't a problem just for the non-Christian. Uh, the Christian can suffer from it just as much. And like Nassim, that unbelief will eventually show itself. Instead of growing in the Christian life, the Christian starts to mark time or even actually go backwards as opportunities to exercise faith are squandered. Now, I'm sure that Nassim could have given a whole lot of reasons why he was finding Christian things difficult. Perhaps it might have been a personality clash in the church or pressures at work a demanding family, but they're not the root cause. They never are. They can always be traced back to a lack of faith. Now, chapter 8 is the climax of the first half of Mark's Gospel. This uh, first half of Mark's Gospel is dominated by the question, who is Jesus? And at the end of chapter 8, the disciples at last recognize who Jesus is. They recognize that he is the Christ, that divine figure promised in the Old Testament who would bring salvation and blessing on God's people. But at this stage, they still don't get it. And in verse 21, we find Jesus saying to his disciples, that exasperation, do you still not understand? So as we go through our passage, we're going to consider first the widespread problem of unbelief and then the glorious solution. So those are, that's to show you where we're going. So first, the widespread problem of unbelief. And we begin with the unbelief of the Pharisees. And we have it there in verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. They've come to question Jesus not because they want to discover who he really is, but because they've already mined up, made up their minds that he isn't the Messiah. They're not looking to be convinced. Instead, they're after material 
to justify their unbelief. Their religious prejudice means that they have no room for Jesus. See, the Jews thought that the coming of the Messiah would be accompanied by signs in the heavens. And so if Jesus is the Messiah, he should be able to produce the fireworks. So come on, Jesus, prove your credentials. And actually, if you think about it, this demand for a sign is very familiar. Again and again, people have said to me, why doesn't God write something in the sky so that everyone would believe in him? But God has given us more than enough evidence to believe and trust in Jesus. It's not lack of evidence, which is our problem. It is our prejudice. It's not so much that we can't believe, but that we won't. Now, Jesus' reaction in the face of such religious prejudice is salutary. We read in verse 12 that he sighed deeply. And our English translations, they kind of missed the full force of that sigh. A better translation would be he sighed from the kind of the bottom of his heart. It grieved Jesus greatly. But the real surprise is what comes next. See, we would expect Jesus to say, why do you Pharisees ask for a miraculous sign? But he doesn't. Why, he asks, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? Why do the, the people uh, here in uh, Israel, why does this world, why does our society demand for a sign? Now that's devastating because what Jesus is saying is that the Pharisee, and remember who the Pharisees were, these were the very, the most kind of devout, keen, kind of religious people uh, of that day, that they are actually no different from the rest of society. And so, I suppose today, we mustn't be surprised if we find that some church leaders aren't all that different from the rest of society. See, the attitude of society is very powerful in all of us, isn't it? It presses in and, and conforms us. And when we're talking the same language as our contemporaries, and listening to the same ideas, it's difficult to stand outside it. And so, as we've been aware recently, if our society wants to celebrate sexual intimacy outside of marriage, then we shouldn't be surprised if parts of the visible church want to. It's not easy being different. And these Pharisees were not different. They had the same attitude of unbelief, says Jesus, as, his, as that generation. In fact, people in every generation have said to God, prove it. And it's humbling to see these religious leaders of Jesus' day doing the same. And Jesus goes on, truly I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Now that also seems quite strange, actually, because Jesus actually had done many miracles. He'd given them plenty of signs. But what they were doing was laying down conditions to believe. And Jesus is saying here that God is not going to respond to such demands. You see, the essence of unbelief is to put God to the test, to say to God, you do this, and I will do that. But such an attitude is very foolish because God is not under our examination. We're under his. On the last day, God will not answer to us. No, we will answer to him. 
But it's not just those who are prejudiced against Jesus who disbelieve. Christians also suffer from unbelief as well. So verse 14, the disciples had done the thing which you must never do uh, when you go on a, a trip, and that is to forget to take the picnic basket with you. But Jesus isn't the least bothered about that. Instead, he gives his disciples a warning. It's there in verse 15. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Now, what exactly that uh, warning means is open to debate, but I suspect that it refers back to what has just happened. It is the willful unbelief of the Pharisees in the face of the clear evidence. For the last time we had the Pharisees and the Rodians mentioned together was in chapter 3, when uh, uh, they were trying to trap Jesus, uh, when he healed the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. And then we then read that they went out to plot how to kill him. So it is that sort of hard-hearted unbelief. And Jesus warns the disciples against an attitude he says that attitude is like yeast that can start small and which unchecked will grow and spread. And so he warns them to watch out. And the rest of the story shows how easily we can be affected by it. So verse 16, the disciples are completely clueless. They think that Jesus is upset because they've forgotten the picnic. And Jesus comes back, why are you talking about having no bread? Verse 17, do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? At the time of the Exodus, we read that Pharaoh hardened his heart. He was faced with the reality of God but he didn't respond to it. It's almost that Jesus is in effect saying to his disciples, are you, are you behaving like Pharaoh? Are you like the Pharisees? Very chilling thing for Jesus to say to his disciples. What is the problem? Well, the problem is that the disciples are concerned with trivia. The picnic, rather than with who Jesus is and what he's doing and what he's warning them about. Think what has just happened. They have just seen Jesus powerfully at work. They have witnessed for a second time a miraculous feeding in the wilderness. Now, if you know absolutely nothing about the kind of the Old Testament story of what happened when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt and when he fed them in the desert, then the significance of these uh, feelings may be lost on you, but it shouldn't have been lost on them. The disciples were all Jews, schooled in the Old Testament scriptures. They had seen Jesus feed both Jews and Gentiles alike in the desert, just as God had fed the children of Israel before he brought them into the promised land. Jesus has been giving miraculous, visible intent of his work of global salvation 
and transformation. And what is filling the hearts and minds of the disciples? The fact that they've got no bread. And so Jesus treats them like children. Verse 19. When I break the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I break the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. In other words, there was no problem with bread, was there? He said to them, do you still not understand? And sadly, the answer is, no, they haven't. And friends, before we go, duh, those stupid disciples, don't we often do something similar? See, if we are convinced Christians, we know who Jesus is and what he's about. But so often I'm consumed about my little world and my little problems. I worry about what people think of me or where I'm going on holiday or whether the accommodation we're living in is, is quite right. And I, and I will forget the glorious and wonderful thing that Jesus is doing in the world. The glorious and wonderful thing that he's doing in the world now as I speak of Gav building his church and gathering people to himself so that when he comes in glory at the end of time, there may be a people to enter and enjoy the new heavens and the new earth from every tribe and language, people and nation. See, as often been said, <laughs> the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And that problem affects us all, believer and unbeliever alike. So what is the solution to this widespread problem of unbelief and hardness of heart? Well, that's explained, I think, by this extraordinary miracle in verses 22 to 26. And so we come to our second heading, which is the glorious solution to this widespread problem of unbelief. Now, this uh, healing of a blind man has three unique features. They have no parallel in any other account of Jesus' miracles. And actually, it's only Mark who records it. At first, there is the question which Jesus asks, checking on the effectiveness of the miracle. Never get that anywhere else. Second, there is the fact that the healing first time round was only partial. So that the blind man could see, but not clearly. He, he saw people and they looked like trees walking around. And then the third unique element is that Jesus laid on his eyes a second time. And it's only then that we read that his eyes were opened and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. So what is Mark teaching us through this miracle? Mark uh, had at his disposal endless material about Jesus. So why did he choose this account? Is it to show us that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ? Well, I think that that must be a major reason. 
So Isaiah 35, which we had as our first reading, looks ahead to the restoration of Israel, and we read these words. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. So the last miracle before this one, which Mark recorded, was the healing of a deaf mute. And what does immediately follows this account? Well, just turn over a page and have a look at verse 29. It is the account where, uh, actually, Peter twigs at last that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. So I'm sure that Mark is recording for us Jesus' healing of a deaf mute and a blind man is wanting us to see how Jesus here is fulfilling Isaiah 35. But that can't be the complete answer for why does he go into such detail about this miracle happening in two halves? And because when you read the story, that's what strikes you. Well, by the positioning of this miracle in his account, I think Mark is teaching us, first, that nobody can understand who Jesus is unless God opens their eyes. So we've seen that the first kind of eight chapters of Mark's gospel are taken up with the question, who is Jesus? And at last, at the end of the chapter, Peter recognizes who he is. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. But given the unbelief and confusion we've had so far in the chapter, that declaration is remarkable. So how did Peter get there? Because he was the brightest cookie amongst the disciples? No, it's because God had done a mighty miracle in Peter. He had opened his eyes. See, Jesus did the miracle at Bethsaida, and Mark records it, not primarily to tell us that Jesus can heal a blind man, but to tell us that if these disciples are ever going to understand, Jesus is going to have to open their eyes. Peter, in verse 29, realizes that Jesus is not just a prophet pointing to the future, but that he is the future to whom the prophets pointed. And if you're a believer here this evening, if you know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Lord, the Son of Almighty God, And if you are following him, it is because God has graciously done a miracle in you of softening your heart and opening your eyes. And if you stop to think about it for a moment, you know that to be true. See, why is it that you know who Jesus is and believe in him and not that friend or neighbor or colleague, or other family member who doesn't? Is it because you are more intelligent or a better person than they are? And of course it isn't that. Perhaps you've come to church very much undecided about Jesus. Perhaps you're not sure he is God's Christ. Well, One thing you need to do is please start looking at the evidence. Start coming along and keep on coming to church. Read the Gospels. But at the same time, ask God to reveal 
Jesus to you. Ask him to open your eyes because you won't actually be able to think your way there. You see, there is a, a spiritual dimension to us coming to faith. It's not just an intellectual thing. And it's to do with our hearts and our eyes. And naturally we have hard hearts and blind eyes and deaf ears to God's truth. I'm sure as Christians we all, we, we long to uh, see and experience God powerfully at work in people and situations. If that's the case, my friends, then look around you. For every one of us here this evening who knows Jesus Christ as Lord does so only because God has worked that mighty miracle in us. The trouble is often we don't have (laughs) the eyes to see it. And this leads me on to the second point that Mark, I think, teaches us through this uh, healing of the blind man at Bethsaida. See, not only do, not only can we uh, only understand who Jesus is by God opening our eyes, but God is going to have to do uh, another miracle in us if we're going to grow in our understanding of his ways. See, Peter's at last discovered that Jesus is the, the Christ, but he hasn't yet discovered what sort of Christ he is. That's why Jesus tells Peter and the other disciples uh to keep quiet in verse 30. It isn't enough for them to know that Jesus is the Son of God. They also must know what he came to do. And when Jesus tells them in verse 31 that the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth must be rejected and die, Peter can't accept that. Now, Peter here isn't being thick or unusual usually obtuse, if you tried to explain God's sovereign power in terms of a suffering figure on a cross to any Jew, Greek or Roman in the ancient world, they would have laughed you out of court for talking such utter nonsense. See, Peter sees, but he only sees as that blind man first saw. Another miracle is needed if Peter's going to see clearly. And what is true of Peter is true of all Christian believers. We might understand who Jesus is. We might actually understand what Jesus achieved through the death of on, on the cross. But how well do we understand and embrace that the, the way of Christian discipleship is to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus? So again, again, I might know it true here in my head, but do I really know it here in my heart? Friends, I don't know about you, but I constantly forget it. I get frustrated and annoyed at my weaknesses rather than resting in Christ, knowing that his power is made perfect in weakness. We don't naturally think God's thoughts or accept God's ways. Peter didn't in Mark 8, and actually we don't. We need to be constantly crying out to God to open our blind eyes and to soften our hard hearts. So when I prayed before the sermon, 
for God to open our eyes. That wasn't just a nice, nice thing to do, which we always do before sermons. And there's a nice little tradition that we have. I'm sure it can degenerate to that if we're not careful. But it's absolutely right that when we come to God's word, either on our, our own, in our personal devotions, or when we're in a, a life group, or looking at it with others, that we cry out to God to open our eyes that we might see him more clearly. For unless God acts in power and touches our hearts and minds, we will understand little. We might see with our eyes and hear with our ears, but we're likely to leave church unchanged. It took a mighty miracle for this man in our story to see anything at all, and it took another mighty miracle for him to see clearly. And I suggest that the way Mark places this healing of the blind man between the blindness of his disciples in verses 17 to 21 and Peter's confession of Christ is because he wants us to leave here this evening understanding that what was true of this man physically is true of us spiritually. Nobody can understand who Jesus is unless God works a mighty miracle and opens their eyes. And nobody grows in that understanding of God and his ways unless God continues to soften their hearts and to open their eyes. For God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. So as I finish now, what I'm going to suggest we do is that we have a moment of quiet in which we acknowledge before Jesus, before the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, on our our own, just our our natural blindness and heartiness, and that we cry out to him to do what only he can do, which is to change our hearts. And I don't know, there may be something which we're aware of at the moment where we are, we know that we're deliberately being hard-hearted. And if we are, will you now ask, will you prepare to cry out and say, Lord, will you change my heart so that I may truly believe? Will you help my unbelief, that hardness of my heart, so that I will see clearly and follow you faithfully, that I will take up, deny myself, take up my cross and follow you.